Hello to you, I do hope you're well and a very warm welcome to this A-Level Religious Studies Revision Session. I'm Ben Wardle and coming up today we're looking at the developments in Christian thought topic, looking at death and the afterlife. <laughs> it does all sound very positive, doesn't it? It's going to be a very uplifting and upbeat session. Basically, we're tackling the ideas from the church, um, from Christianity and Christian theology about life after death, which I think is probably one of the most significant things about Christianity as a religion. You know, if we look at the world's religions what makes them different i always think from say just being a like a non-governmental organization committed to world peace it's these ideas these metaphysical ideas that they have about um the divine and about the transcendent and at the core 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 of this is their ideas and understanding of life after death this life for the christian believer is just one tiny part of the human journey we have this life it's tiny in comparison to this eternal life to this greater better place that we are going to you could say it's wishful thinking it's trying to give people in a world of suffering hope or equally you could say it's a very liberating idea it's one that's very empowering very positive and it shows that there is more to life than just this physical world in which we live so for this topic we'll be looking at first of all the church's attitudes and interpretations of heaven hell and purgatory and then we'll be looking at the ideas of election and i want to tie things off bring it all together by looking at a specific bible passage perhaps the most powerful and influential of jesus's teachings on life after death which is the parable of the sheep and the goats which is found in the book of matthew in matthew chapter 25 so that is the plan for the session let's get started shall we with looking at the ideas and interpretations from the church from different theologians of heaven hell and purgatory so heaven i think is a concept we're all very much familiar with and um, but what does the church actually teach because I think there is a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding in terms of how we perceive what the church teaches we imagine heaven as understood by the church to be this like paradise you know to be I don't know I've got an image of God on a throne and all of this sorry I'm having a hair malfunction right now I'm just getting quite upset about it but we're going to soldier on because it's important to talk about heaven there'll be nice hairdressers in heaven for me I'm sure there will do I'm sure there will and um, so what we're going to be talking about is heaven as it is understood by the catholic church because we we have this idea of like a throne and of you know a paradise and you're all on the clouds is that practical? You know, it would be the invention of air travel and space travel not completely flaw this idea because it proves that actually just above the clouds it isn't people walking around for eternity and having a nice time. Did people believe that anyway? You know, so the idea about heaven from the church, from the Catholic Church, we can trace back to Thomas Aquinas. Shock of the year, isn't it? He's the man, isn't he? He really is the man. And he um spoke about heaven as this beatific vision and it's the idea that heaven represents eternal happiness now interpret that how you will you could say well is it then a state of being and a state of mind so that when you died you're in a state of being where you're just eternally happy and it's just a state of peace it's like being asleep you know you're not in discomfort you're not conscious of it but you're in a state of peace and happiness for, so you could interpret that in that way, the idea of eternal happiness. For the Catholic, for the, uh, the Aquinas point of view, that happiness comes from being face to face with God. So the Catholic Church teaches today in the Catechism and looking back to the teachings of Thomas Aquinas, that the state of happiness achieved in heaven 
is produced by coming face to face with God. Now, again, you could take a metaphorical interpretation of that, but I think the church here is quite clear. When it says face to face with God, that's quite a literal idea so that you actually, heaven, why is heaven so amazing? Why do we want to go to heaven? Because you will meet your maker. It's because you will become face to face with your creator. If we look at the biblical evidence for this in the Bible, we see Jesus saying, my father's house has many rooms. So the idea that you are going to God's metaphorical or literal house so you're going to be living with him we talk about he says you know my kingdom is not of this world so kingdom this idea of a place where you will be with god and with all the others who have died um, and that is where you will go now it's very clear in christian teaching that heaven is beyond words it transcends it if we think about the religious language topic and the ideas about the via negativa this idea there are certain things which we we have to enter a cloud of unknowing in order to understand but the catechism says the catechism does try and describe heaven it says heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings the state of supreme definitive happiness now again i'm coming straight back to this idea it's all about happiness right could it be more of a state of mind, a state of being, this idea of resting in peace as opposed to being this literal kingdom? Are we being too anthropomorphic in our attempts to understand heaven, which clearly transcends what we understand to be, um, you know, the difference between the physical world in which we live, which is temporal, which is changing, you know, which is very much um, based on time and things live and they die. This idea of an eternal life, does that then take on a different characteristic and form? We come into loads of questions here about the physical practicalities of heaven. For example, the ideas of the body. How is your body physically able to be alive after it has physically died? You know, there's some very, very interesting questions that we've got to um, bring in and ask here. So this idea from the catechism that it is the ultimate end, this is sounding very Aristotelian to me, that's no coincidence. Thomas Aquinas, as we know, is very shaped by um, Aristotle and his thinking. It's this idea of being maybe flourishing, fulfillment, achieving that eudaimonia, that greatest happiness, the supreme definitive happiness that the church is saying comes from being face to face with God. Are we saying that is in a literal place? Are we, is this a place that's called happiness? Or could it be more of a metaphorical spiritual understanding where you're in a state of mind in a state of being as as much as anything else so very interesting to consider that perspective and to look at it from that angle um i think there are other views um that we can bring in here we have got the liberation theology view which is um you know spearheaded by oscar romero and gustavo gutierrez and leonardo boss um i've got a full video on that so make sure you check that out and it's this idea that when jesus was speaking of the kingdom the kingdom of god he meant a whole um revolution in the actual physical world in which they were living so when people say oh the kingdom of god is like an afterlife it's something to come you're going to die and go there what they're saying is actually what jesus meant by this is that there will be a transformation and a revolution of this world in which we are living if we go back to the context in which jesus was teaching people believe the end of the world was very very near so it would make sense almost for him to be teaching that there is going to be this new kingdom of god there is going to be this paradise um on earth as it is in heaven 
this idea that there is this ideal, this like utopia, which we can understand heaven to be, but what Jesus was actually saying, and N.T. Wright, a key gospel um, scholar, said this, the gospels were keep promising a kingdom of this world, that it would be a heaven on this world, that there would be a transformation, a revolution in this world, as opposed to it being something after death. So actually, is heaven going to come in a second world or is it going to come in this world, in this existence within the spheres of our lives here? Is that transformation revolution going to actually take place here and now? So that's very interesting for us to be considering and to be reflecting on there. So supporting that view, we've got the liberation theologians and we've got N.T. Wright, a gospel scholar. If we look at Rudolf Bultmann and remember his comments on um, the way that we interpret the Bible on biblical exegesis and how we are looking through that hermeneutics lens and he was very clear we cannot um use electric lights and modern medicine and still um be in awe of the mystery and wonder of the new testament so his idea is that you know when we look at the context in which jesus was teaching and in which he lived actually is what jesus was saying about a kingdom about heaven was it about a transformation um, and a liberation of this world in this lifetime as opposed to meaning a second world a life after death so we've got some like subtle differences that we can bring in here and that we can discuss and reflect on you know are we saying that heaven is a literal second world where you will live for eternity or is it more of a spiritual state where you're going to be very happy or is it going to be a transformation of this world here and now as the liberation theology approach would say as N.T. Wright would say when he's talking of the gospels promising a kingdom of heaven in this world so some very other oh, sun's just gone in what a nice little lighting change a little cloud appeared um it's a very interesting approach to be taking a look at um for example parousia is the word we use for christ's second coming so actually is heaven going to be the transformation of this earth when all the poverty injustice oppression suffering is abolished and christ comes again to bring about this heaven this ideal on earth in this world so is it physical or non-physical? One last person I want to bring in is Paul Tillich and his ideas about metaphors. You know, um, he says, um, heaven and hell must be taken seriously as metaphors for the polar opposites in the experience of the divine. So the idea that heaven and hell are serving us metaphors, they are metaphorical ideals about our experience of the divine. This idea that happiness comes from being at one with God or at one with the universe because you've lived a good life and hell is more of an alienation, a separation. It doesn't mean they are physical places but they are more metaphors, they are states of being, they are states of existing in the life that comes after death or you know in the states that whatever we are in after we have died when our physical bodies have died. Um, let's talk about hell then, shall we? Because that leads us nicely in. A nice point to make on this is Origen said that hell is a spiritual state. So it's not an actual place. It's a spiritual state. Because, of course, the ideas about hell present a lot of problems for Christians in terms of reconciling um, hell with the idea of a loving God. Why would a loving God send anyone to eternal damnation, to eternal suffering in this way? And Gregory of Nyssa um, said that hell is a guilty conscience. 
And it's this idea that you induce hell upon yourself, that it is a state of mind which is induced from being separated from God. So in that way, God hasn't created a hell, but you have personally, through your conscious decision to turn away from the good, to turn away from God, brought that upon yourself. So this is a very interesting idea that hell is a, as Origen says, a spiritual state. Um, so again, we could link that to Tillich and his idea that heaven and hell are metaphors for the polar opposites in the experience of the divine. Um, and Gregory of Nyssa and his idea it's a guilty conscience, that they are spiritual states, much in the way you could say heaven is a um, spiritual state. And Paul Tillich said that hell is a metaphor for alienation. So it's more psychological than physical. So we've got a lot of debate to be bringing in here. And I really want to see that evaluation from you. Asking, you know, is, is the, are these ideals physical? Are they psychological? Are they spiritual? Are they symbolic? What is the actual nature of these places we are discussing? Or what are the consequences of that? for religious believers. If you believe hell is a physical place, what does that mean for how you live your life and how you understand God? Whereas if you believe hell is a spiritual place or it is symbolic of a separation, alienation or a deficiency of connection with God, how does that transform your worldview? How does that transform your understanding of life after death? How does that transform how you actually live out your faith in this lifetime? So some very, very interesting questions to ask there. The Roman Catholic Church does believe hell is an actual place, so it does believe it has to exist physically in the same way that heaven has to exist physically but significantly the catholic church says nobody is there because god is ultimately loving nobody is there he will send them to purgatory which is like an in-between intermediate state after you've died where you go to then purify your soul so then you can go to heaven so if you have been a bad person in this lifetime the catholic church says yes okay there is a hell you know it needs to be there it's part of the narrative if you like it's part of our world understanding there is a hell but you're not going to go there you're going to go to purgatory which is like this waiting room where you cleanse and purify your soul and then you can go to heaven when you are your soul is ready to go and um, so the church says you know it's an actual place nobody's there we can trace this back to John Paul II who said he did believe there was a hell but he said I don't think anybody is there um, and the church says the catechism says the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God and so, you know, we can have all this language of hell as like a burning lake where you're being tortured and where there's all this fire, you know, and suffering and pain for eternity and this image or could it take on a more symbolic and spiritual role, as we've said, where it's actually a turning away, it's an absence, it's an alienation. As we said, Paul Tillich saying it's a metaphor for alienation and separation. Other key theologians believing that heaven is the happiness that comes from being in harmony with God. Hell is the unhappiness and the pain that you bring upon yourself, which is self-induced from a separation, from an alienation from God. Um, but the church very much saying it does exist physically, but nobody is there, which is where purgatory comes in and saves the day. So purgatory is basically, it's about, I remember it as, because I say it's about purification, purgatory purification, and it's about the purification, the cleansing of the soul. So if you have died in a state of sin, so if you are not worthy of instant, like fast 
fast-track access to heaven, if you like. You don't get condemned to hell. You go, the Catholic Church believes, to purgatory. Interesting, the Protestant tradition does not believe in purgatory. It doesn't think it's a real thing, but the Catholic Church is very keen on this. This place for cleansing, for purification, where your soul can be prepared for um, heaven. And the Church teaches it is a place to undergo purification to achieve Holy, the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So that is the catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, so if you're not pure, you're not, you know, perfectly good, that's okay. You can go to like a school for the soul, if you like, where you will be taught and well that, where that will be dealt with. Now, this is interesting because it facilitates universal redemption. Gregory of Nyssa, who, remember, said hell is a guilty conscience, didn't believe hell was a place. He said purgatory is somewhere where all can be redeemed. Even if you can't get there in this lifetime, there is the next lifetime. So there is still hope. It doesn't mean you're going to be condemned. Um, there is biblical support for this. Maccabees, the book of Maccabees in the Bible says we should pray for the dead. What's the point of praying for them if their fate has already been sealed? So that must mean that after you die, there is still a chance to have salvation, to be rescued, to be helped in that way. And Corinthians, uh, written by Paul, speaks um, of and uses imagery of cleansing by the fire. So this idea that after you've died, your body, your soul can be cleansed and purified and prepared to enter heaven because you cannot go to heaven unless you are clean and pure and all of this language that we talk about. Um, so it is very much described as a place where you can come to a greater understanding of your sinfulness um, and you can have repentance for what you've done wrong. So it's almost like a middle way. It's like a, you know, a school for the soul, if you like, where you can take a break. You're not being instantly condemned to hell, but also you're not getting instant access to heaven. It's a place where, and it's sort of a little small print piece isn't it if you like it sort of covers the church's back because instead of it sounding cruel like you're just condemned to hell instantly you get another chance you get a chance to be purified so this could open the door for universalism and we'll be talking about that in just a moment's time when we talk about limited election unlimited election and universalism we can talk about purgatory facilitating that and john hick uh, who is a big fan of universalism and is very uh, quite liberal theologian, he saw the value in purgatory and he was a Roman Catholic, so it did fit with his world outlook. John Hick believed that, you know, God is loving, so he wouldn't just condemn people to hell. That doesn't fit right with this idea of an omnibenevolent God. So the idea of purgatory, where you can sort of have redemption, where there is an opportunity, there is a chance to be saved, despite dying in not in that pure state, that sort of facilitates that and um, it gives you that chance to be purified before then going to heaven, not being condemned to hell for eternity. So some very interesting ideas coming in there. Let's have a look then, shall we, um, at this idea of election. So the idea of election, we can split it down and break it up into three points. OK, so basically election is so we've got these ideas of heaven, hell and purgatory. It's the question of who goes where and how is this decided? So election, like in a political election, it is a vote. It is a decision that's made. And it's made by one person alone, God. Or is it? Are you worthy of salvation through your own actions? Um, Augustine would say no. And he believes in limited election. This is where 
God defies and you have no control whatsoever. So no matter how much good you do in this lifetime, that is irrelevant. That will have no bearing on whether you go to heaven or hell. The decision is made by God and God's grace alone. And if you remember from what we said about original sin, this fits into Augustine's worldview and his ideas about how the fall has led to our corruption. So we are all sinful. So it is God who will use his grace to pick and choose who he will save irrespective of how you behave in this lifetime because you are inheriting sinfulness at birth from Adam. We then, and he has support in that, uh, in the 16th century from John Calvin. And it's also a position held by the Catholic Church. We will get onto this. You've then got unlimited election, which is the idea from Karl Barth that through Jesus Christ, everybody can be saved and then we move along the spectrum again to universalism closely associated as we know with john hick and this is the idea that everybody will be saved because a loving god would not condemn anyone he would save all and um, so these are the three key points on election it's the question of who will be saved and it comes down to limited election unlimited election and universalism so those are the three key points Let's start with the first one, shall we? It is limited election. And this is from Augustine, rooted in his idea of original sin. And it's based on this notion that we are all sinful. We inherit sinfulness because we're in Adam's loins and we are born into a state of sin. Um, and it is only through God's grace that we can therefore achieve any salvation. So God decides, and this is known as double predestination. God decides not only who will go to heaven, but also who will go to hell. So it is God as very much emphasized as the omnipotent deity here he has all the power so no matter what you do in this lifetime no matter how you behave god has already made that decision so before you even breathe he's made that decision who's going here to heaven who's going there to hell it's a decision that has been made instant evaluation you could say well what's the point of doing any good in this world then if the decision's already been made what's the point of morality is god not a judge you know you could say there is a lot of imagery in christianity of god as a judge and this idea of a day of judgment which we see in the parable of the sheep and the goats which we'll be exploring in just a minute um and you could say these seem to contradict the idea that God pre predestines us. God makes that decision before we do anything seems to contradict the idea of a judge. Because why would he need to judge if he's already made the decision before he's seen your behaviour? Um, but you could respond to this by saying, look, you still need to live a moral life because it will reaffirm God's decision. It will remind him why he has chosen you. Um, and the point is, it's blind. You don't know if you have been chosen to go to heaven. You don't know if you've been chosen to go to hell. It is blind. So you should do good anyway because you just don't know. You know, you don't know what the outcome is. You don't know what's going to happen. So there's no reason to just be like, oh, I don't care then because the decision's been made because you do not know. John Calvin proposed his um, interpretation on this um, in the 16th century in um, his work, Church Dogmatics. And his point on this was that God is, again, it's back to this omnipotence. God is understood as the most powerful being. He must therefore have control over everything that's going on. He must know what your free choices are. He must know what you're going to do right and what you're going to do wrong. So in order for God's omnipotence to be maintained, Calvin affirms that God has ultimate control over all 
things. So he could not be anything except in control of both the free choices we make and therefore the eternal life we will enter into. So you can't have the control over whether you go to heaven or hell. It must rest solely with God. Now you could say this goes against the notion of free will, which we can even see in Augustine, because, you know, you have no control over your actions. We're saying God has planned, preordained, prescribed it all, if you like. But um, this is certainly... A, a very strong opinion which has had considerable influence in terms of the church believing God has chosen, he's preordained, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. The church does, however, today, the Roman Catholic Church today, stresses choice. And the church does say people send themselves to hell. So whilst God, the church, says may choose who goes to heaven, he would never send anyone to hell because he's a loving God. And if we're understanding hell as an alienation anyway, that sort of a self-induced psychological spiritual state so it's something that you bring upon yourself if you like so that understanding would say that it is a single predestination so whereas calvin is arguing for a double predestination where god decides because he has to remain ultimately in control of everything who goes to heaven who goes to hell the catholic church proposes a more limited version a softer weaker version if you like called single predestination which is where God decides who goes to heaven, but you yourself will condemn yourself to go to hell through your actions, through turning away from God, through creating that alienation, that gulf and that gap between you and the divine. So that's a personal responsibility issue, whereas heaven remains down to God and God alone. We then move along to unlimited election, which comes from Karl Barth, who, of course, was a big, big believer in the Trinity. He said it was the doctrine of the Trinity, which fundamentally distinguishes the Christian faith from any other religious tradition. And it is only through the Trinity that salvation can be attained. So he believed that God does not choose each person whether they're going to heaven or hell okay he believed he didn't do that what god did choose to do was send jesus christ to the world to offer unlimited election to offer unlimited salvation that doesn't mean everybody has decided to take it up so not everybody will be saved but he has said look he sort of pushed jesus more and said look here is jesus here is the son here is the savior i'm offering that to you all. So when the church talks a lot about the universal mission of evangelization, such as Pope John Paul II in Redemptoris Missio, it is this idea from Bath that Jesus is the unlimited salvation. He is offered to everybody. Anybody can come to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Anybody can choose to follow that path and therefore achieve salvation. So God's choice is not who to save individually, but his choice is to send Jesus. So you could say he's choosing to offer salvation to everybody, but then he gives them the choice whether to take it or not. And it is their choice whether to believe in Jesus Christ. You could say, well, look, this isn't unlimited at all, because what if you lived before Jesus Christ was alive? Or what if you live in a tribe in Africa, so you never in your whole lifetime even hear the word Jesus, because why would you? You know, if Jesus is the universal um, elector, if you like, he's not very universal because he's only known in certain parts of the world, in a certain tiny, tiny part of human history. What about the ancient Greeks, for example, who lived before Jesus? They would never have had the choice 
to believe in Jesus Christ and find salvation in him. So although it seems very nice to say that Jesus Christ is sent to everybody to offer universal salvation, um, it, it's not universal, is it? Because it's not being given to everybody in all cultures, in all contexts, in all times. So that's the evaluation point we can bring in there. But Karl Barth says there is no condemnation, literally none, for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that's what he writes in his church dogmatics. So it's very much that Jesus is the universal saviour. It's unlimited election. Anybody can be elected through Jesus Christ, who is sent to all. God's choice is not individuals, but to send Jesus Christ. But the evaluation point there is, but just how unlimited is this election? Because there are clear limits imposed by history. Who was alive before Jesus, as opposed to in the 2000 years since his death? You know, who is in a country and in a culture where they've got access to his teachings and his ideals and his message? So there's lots and lots to consider. And then finally, the most liberal one, which is championed by John Hick, is universalism, that everybody must be saved. Salvation is open to everybody. Heaven, the doors are open to us all. You can all go in there, irrespective of what you've done, who you are, what you've learned about Jesus or what you've not learned about Jesus. Everybody has got a ticket into heaven. It's an idea rooted in compassion, based on this idea that Jesus Christ's core message was of compassion. Um, and it means we are all going to be saved. We are all going to heaven. This is where purgatory comes in. This is where purgatory is very important and why it's important to John Hick, because it means even if you don't do good in this lifetime, you can be saved and you have the choice to do the good necessary to get to heaven in the next lifetime. The sun is causing chaos with the lighting. And I do apologize, but it looks like I'm having a little religious experience here, doesn't it? Got a little burning bush, gonna to speak to Jesus in a minute. Um, but we've got to ask about this, but does this not make um morality meaningless? Does this not reduce morality to being a question of, well, we're gonna be saved anyway, so what's the point of doing good? Do we not lose the motivation to be moral and to do good in this lifetime if we're all going to be saved? But you could say, well, listen, it's a radical religion of love and compassion. That's at the core of Jesus' teachings, and it must be open to everybody, not just to those who God has already decided for himself, which makes him out to be some kind of divine dictator. It's not just for people who are fortunate enough to be brought up Catholic or brought up Christian, so they've got the chance to be saved and elected through Jesus Christ. It needs to be open to everybody, because if we're all an equal creation, that is the compassionate, loving, inclusive thing to be done. Um, so there's our spectrum, a limited election, unlimited election, and universalism. They are the three schools of thought on this issue. Let's do a little bit of evaluation. I do then want to bring in the parable of the sheep and the goats from the New Testament, because this is something you have to get in your answer. If you're answering this question, you have to get this in from the Bible, Matthew 25. Get it in there. I'm telling you right now, my loves. Um, but we're going to do some evaluation before we do that. Um, the first thing that I want to discuss is what does all this mean for the nature of God? For example, if we believe, for example, in the existence of hell, just in general, what does that mean for our understanding of God? Because if we believe him to be an omnibenevolent being, who is a good being, why would he have created a hell? Why would he invent that? And more to the point, why would he send people there? It's very unfair, especially if we take the Augustinian and the Calvin approach of limited election, that he have double predestination that he's decided not only who's going to heaven but also who's going to hell if he's made that decision that he's just going to send people to hell 
even when they've done nothing wrong, what does that mean for God? As I just said, it, it's like a divine dictator. What are the consequences for our understanding and insight into the nature of God and the nature of the divine? However, we can sort of defend God from these accusations by emphasizing the um, sinner condemning themselves. So if we're seeing it more as a spiritual state or as a metaphor and we're saying it's an alienation you've brought upon yourself, that sort of reconciles it. God can remain omnibenevolent and loving because he's not actively sent you to hell. As the Catholic Church says, you have brought it upon yourself. But then we could say, what does that mean for God's omnipotence? You know, where's his power if he's got no control over these things? So it raises lots and lots of questions and issues, you know. There's also the questions of how is any of this literally possible? You know, genuinely, how can there be this separate kingdom of a heaven and a hell? You know, geologists have studied into the earth and they've found that, yes, well, there's a lot of heat and fire down there. There's no little devil with a stick stirring his cauldron. Um, you know, you could say modern science, modern technology has revealed to us about the atmosphere, about the nature of the universe, and no heaven, no hell has been identified. So what does that mean, you know? And how does your body survive the physical death? This is obviously a very basic and very key question how is it possible for your physical body to survive your death do you need your body in heaven you know if heaven is a physical place that would suggest you need your physical body but how does that work because your body is dead in the ground <laughs> not to you know state the facts in that manner so does that mean a spiritual interpretation where it's about your soul is more understandable. John Hick proposed his replica theory, you'll remember from Soul, Mind and Body, in which he says that in heaven, your whole body is replicated. So God clones you, if you like. So your body, yes, has died on this earth, but then he creates a double and you've got your whole new body in heaven. Now, is this a bit far-fetched? Which body does he replicate? Does he replicate me at my age of choice? So can I come be there at 18? Can I come back at 18? Or is it gonna be how you looked when you died? You know, what if you died in a car crash, so half your body is completely dismembered? What, what do they do then? Just recreate the half the body that you've got left with a couple of, you know, limbs missing. How does it work practically? Um, and you can ask questions of what do people do in heaven all day? If you're just there in eternal happiness, face to face with God, does it not get a bit boring? Do you not just sit there one day and think, do you know what, I'm a bit bored, let's go to hell and have some fun? Cause me a bit of trouble, you know. Does heaven not turn into hell when you've just been sat on a cloud, as this seems to suggest, for billions upon billions and billions of years? Um, so would a interpretation such as N.T. Wright and the liberation theology approach, and obviously I am biased towards liberation theology, so it is my specialist subject, um, is that approach where it becomes a like a political agenda or a social agenda or a transformation in this world, the idea of parousia and the second coming of Christ, is that idea of the heaven on earth on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is an ideal in the mind, in you know the spiritual thoughts if you like it's about turning that idea into reality in the real world on this earth um and this idea of the hermeneutics of suspicion have we taken what jesus was saying about his father's kingdom and this ideal you know of a heaven and an, of an afterlife have we taken that out of context you know are we interpreting it in the wrong way um there is, however, support for the idea of heaven, even from Kant. If you look at Kant, and he, we do understand him as a secular ethicist, um, but he says that in his morality, he has the three postulates of um, God, freedom, and immortality. Um, because in order for 
justice to be done in terms of we have justice for our actions and everybody that's ever lived has justice for their actions, there needs to be a kingdom of ends. There needs to be accountability, you know, without God, who is going to hold us accountable for our behaviours. So you could even say the ideas of heaven and hell are important and they exist, you know, to manage human behaviour, to make humans accountable for their actions. We need a divine judge. We need eternal accountability. We need that metaphysical observation, if you like, of our behaviours and the things that we do in order to hold people accountable for their actions and behaviours in this world. Otherwise, what's the point of morality? You could say, well, that doesn't prove they exist. It just proves that religion is used to control and coerce people and to encourage behaviours. That doesn't prove that heaven and hell or an afterlife exist at all. Um, but leading on from that idea of accountability and the need for divine justice, we come very nicely to uh, Matthew chapter 25. It's all flowing, isn't it, my love? And this idea... Um, that is put forward in the New Testament about the nature of um, heaven and this idea of how you get there. And this is not so much about the nature of heaven and hell and what they're like and if they're a physical place, a psychological state, a metaphor, you know, a symbol, but actually this idea of election as well. So this is really nice in that you can link it into anything we've talked about today and you can really get your key biblical quotes in there and it goes to the core of Christian theology and Christian teaching about the world, about morals and about life after death. Get down to business shall we my love? Let's do it. So I'm going to read it to you. We're going to do like story time okay. Pretend you're back at school. We are at school. Oh my god the sun. Oh oh god. Oh I can't be seen dear. This is not ideal, but I'm going to sit here so you can see me, because I know that's what you really want. It is. So, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Okay. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did you... When were you hungry? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger or invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Voila, so there's clearly some uh, hell imagery going on there. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not stop to help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous 
to eternal life. So it's this idea, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. This is a social and moral agenda Jesus is setting out here. And this goes to the very core. You could use a liberation theology here as well, because liberation theology is the idea of a preferential um, option for the poor, preferential treatment for the poor, the empowerment of those who are oppressed in society, the liberation of those who are on the peripheries. But what we also see there is this language about judgment. So whereas with Augustine and Calvin, it's this decision has already been made. Here in the New Testament, we have a clear message in this um, Matthew chapter 25. We have a clear message that you will be judged on how you've behaved. And it is about the goodness that you've done. Have you emulated Christ in helping the poor? Um, you know, supporting your neighbour, giving love, giving compassion, reaching out to the oppressed. And the idea is that you are going to be judged. You are going to be separated. He is going to gather everybody together. So it's this idea of like the last day, if you like. Everybody will be gathered together and then separated. Those who have done good on one side, those who have done bad on the other. Those who have done good will be rewarded with heaven. Those who have done bad will be punished with hell. And it's this very interesting idea that you will be judged for your actions and your behaviours. That things will have consequences. And I think that's a very interesting um piece to look at because it not only shows Jesus's radical moral agenda and we can see that again on the Sermon on the Mount when he says like blessed are the peacemakers blessed are the poor uh, you know all of this but we also see that you will be held accountable and that it is that that will determine whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell that's it from this revision session thank you very much i'm going to get the blinds down because i'm having a little sunstroke now thank you so much for watching i will be back very soon with more have the best day good luck with your studies and take care bye bye